0: Hi, I'm Dahlia Lithwick, legal correspondent, author, and host of Slate's Amicus podcast, a show about the rule of law, the law, and the Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of us. I've been watching the High Court for over two decades, and I bring all that experience and knowledge to examining the U.S. justice system and democracy. Each episode, I am joined by guests with deep knowledge of the law and policy who help me and you navigate our constitutional landscape. Slate's Amicus podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen.
1: Hello
2: and welcome to Politics Forum with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is expert political strategist Simon Rosenberg, one of the few people who predicted the 2022 good democratic year. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in to Forum at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Pliticon for next week's show. Now, we'll get as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our recent sponsors and our recent episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, um, the word crisis is overused, but there is a real crisis in the state of Israel today. Tom Friedman, one of the foremost American journalists in the subject, says the country faces its greatest internal peril in its 75-year history. Prime Minister Netanyahu, a man with Donald Trump and Richard Nixon traits, uh, is rushing to curtail the judicial authority, the Supreme Court. They've already passed one law doing that. Much of it has to do with uh, him facing criminal charges, uh, which he wants to get rid of. And uh, without proper checks and balances, Israel becomes more like Hungary than the democracy it's been for 75 years. But, you know, the real danger, you know, as I look at Netanyahu's right wing coalition is being opposed by the most important and productive elements of that country. Those that have created a remarkable economy and an extraordinary military. Two indicators, the economic, three maybe. The Israeli stock index dropped 3% when the Knesset voted its crackdown on the Supreme Court. There are talk of younger entrepreneurs leaving the country. And while Bibi dismissed the protesters as leftist and anarchist, it included military reservists, thousands of whom say they will not report. Uh, And the government is doing great harm to the security of the country. Every living member of Mossad, the intelligence agency, including the current one, opposes what Netanyahu is doing. The current head of the military uh, wanted to meet with Bibi to say this is a mistake. The prime minister refused to see him. The Israeli Medical Association called a 24-hour doctor strike. These are not leftists and anarchists, James. This country is in real trouble right now.
0: Well, I spent a lot of time on the phone this morning with a, a person who really knows what's going on in Israel, and I, I can't tell you his name, it's a secret, but but, but his initials are Jim Gerstein. Uh, a couple of things to, to keep in mind here. First of all, the Israelis have no constitution. Right. right. So this is where you are. They're going to take this to the Supreme Court, and no one knows what the Israeli Supreme Court's going to do, but... I assume that they will act in their own interests of power and and say that this can't be done. Now, there's a, a compound this by the fact a big, big right-wing judicial thing, particularly here in the United States and other places, is tradition matters. It's a big thing in religion. The tradition is, you know, has a lot of gravitas. And Edmund Burke was big on that. It's very very mm-hmm. big in conservative thought. Well, the tradition has always been that the Supreme Court could overrule legislation that came out of the Knesset. So what could easily happen is the Supreme Court says, this is not kosher. Yes, is the word. Maybe I come up with a better word, but that word seems appropriate. And the Knesset says, who are you to tell us? And now you're Paraguay. Right? <laughs> Then, it, then, okay, who's going to decide this? Well, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, is likely to be the arbiter of this because there's no Marbury versus Madison here. There's mm. no Article 3 or 1 or whatever it is. And it, it's disintegrating by the day. A couple of other things to keep in mind. Number one is they never campaigned on this. This was There was a recent campaign. There was no mention of doing this. There's no, it wasn't even exposed to the public. It just came as a result of their version of the Freedom Caucus. And Bibi Netanyahu, for most of his political career, has been a conniving, you know, nationalistic Israeli guy, survival, political survivalist, et cetera, et cetera. He's caught. He did not want to do this. He's he's Kevin, he's become Kevin McCarthy. He's totally a bitch to to his freedom caucus in the Knesset. So uh, there's there, there's a lot. We're, we're in the bottom of the first inning here. There, there's a lot of baseball left in this. And I don't care who you are, you can't say with much confidence where this is going to end up. And the other thing that I'm told reliably – There's a new and good poll out that showed if they had elections now that the right coalition would get 53 seats in the Knesset. It's 120, you need 61 to govern. I've never seen a poll, I don't know, in this century where the right coalition was under 59 seats. That's a huge shift in Israeli public opinion that's going on right now. So there's a, a, a lot here. And a lot of it is to water waterline. Well, let me just add
2: one caveat about Netanyahu. Uh, he, he doesn't want the disruption it's causing, but he faces criminal charges, James. And uh, what he wants to do is to get this Knesset to pass legislation that basically uh, absolves him of that. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. Uh, and there is a danger that that all could transpire. And the Israeli Supreme Court would say, no, that is illegal, which it is. So I'm not sure that Netanyahu doesn't have mixed views uh, on this, uh, because the one thing we know about Bibi over the years is he is a little bit like Trump in this sense. His first and foremost interest is self-preservation.
0: But, but he, he wants the Knesset to be supreme over the Supreme Court because he has the votes in the Knesset. He doesn't have the, maybe, we don't know, but it doesn't appear that he would have the votes on the Supreme Court. So right. he's forced him to do this legislation which gives primacy to the Knesset because that's his way out. Judicially, he's yeah. not going to get out of this. Let me ask you, what does Joe Biden
2: do? Joe Biden has invited uh, Netanyahu uh, to come to Washington. No data set. My guess is he's going to allow the prime minister to escape the Washington heat. So
0: it's going to be quite a while. But what does Biden do? Tough spot. Well, this is, so we have IDF pilots not showing up. We have all of these people in Israel. I I I, I think we give them three billion dollars a year in aid. 3. I, huh? Three point eight billion. Three point eight. Okay. So since the Camp David Accords are what seventy nine, just call it eighty for to be yeah. clear. So that would be forty, going on forty three years of aid. So why am I an American taxpayer? supporting a government that people, but vast swaths of the people in that country, in fact, oppose the government so much they their own strike. And I would tell Prime Minister Netanyahu is that you're in real, real, real danger of losing the special relationship with the United States because people are going to be telling me, why are we sending money to these guys? They're banning Democratic. They don't pay attention. They do whatever they want. They expand. But some people believe that these West Bank expansions are immoral. Some will tell you they're ill-advised. Some will say they're even immoral. And so why are we, if I were Biden I'd say, I, I don't know how much longer we can continue to support these anti-democratic, aggressive foreign policy measures. We, we built, by the way, Obama built the Iron Dome for them. Right. Which protects the hell out of them. I mean, Jimmy Carter started this aid, which has gone on for 43 freaking years. Well, there's nothing written in the Constitution that we have to give this money every year. You Times probably started out as three, it's now 3.8. You know, $3 billion over 43 years, that's a lot of freaking money, man. That's a lot of bridges, that's a lot of schoolhouses, that's a lot of Patriot missiles. And if I were Biden, I would say, uh, Prime Minister, we have some hard questions to to answer here about our special relationship. And just before we go, the the, the right always does. They conflate people's feelings toward Israel with people's feelings toward the government of Israel. They are two different things. You can love Israel and detest the government of Israel.
2: Well, the military chief of staff over in Israel, the head of Mossad opposes what Netanyahu is doing. I mean, it is hardly anti-Israel. The Israeli Medical <laughs> Association has called for a
0: nationwide doctor's strike. Uh, so uh, so, so don't tell me that some I, I, American— They're, brother- they, they, they're going to tell you that. They will. But All it's, right? oh, yeah, of course, it's, 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 they, because everything they tell you is complete bullshit. If somebody tells you that the climate is not changing, well, okay, you're full of shit. So let's just start right there. And okay. go from there. We've been the people that tell you that you're anti-Semitic if you don't agree with the government of Israel, the same people that tell you the earth they ain't getting any hotter. Yep. Hey James, just just, just short, uh, just quickly, uh, on on our on Donald
2: Trump, uh New York judge said, I'm I'm sorry, he definitively has been convicted of rape. A Rudy Giuliani, his lawyer, has finally admitted that he lied, he out and out lied and claiming he had evidence of voter fraud in Georgia, uh, while he was smearing these innocent poll workers. Jack Smith's noose is getting closer and closer. Is it crater in beginning or is this
0: just like everything else, James? Well, I, I, you have thought that he couldn't survive this for a long time. To give you credit or blame, and I don't know where it's going to end up. I, I, I would say that I itching more, a little bit more toward your view. And, you know, I mean, to be precise, he was found liable for rape, which is, but it's still, a jury found him that, that believed that he, he digitally was rape. but it was digital penetration, I think, I don't get into the specifics. Yeah, and the judge, the judge was pretty, Judge Catherine was pretty forthright. Well, it was pretty forthright, and because the jury was pretty forthright. Mm-hmm. By the way, that judge has been there for 40 years, and the judges tend to respect verdicts. That, that kind of goes to the territory, and it's obviously a learning guy. In uh, Trump's strategy now, is as best I can figure, is he thinks that by threatening the country with a with a riot, that that increases his bargaining position, which is not very good. In other news, Rudy Giuliani has now admitted. That that he defamed that, that wonderful couple, that young uh, black lady and a mother. Oh that yeah, gave that riveting, riveting testimony. Driven from and, their home by, I, by you software. know, and we're just waiting for the next thing. And I think Trump has been told, or now realizes he has shit legal defenses, and his best defense to get the best possible result is to threaten the United States with a insurrection, if you will. And that's exactly what he's doing. And he says, look, I, I don't have much bargaining power under the law, so I'll just scare the shit out of these guys. Now, whether that works or not is highly doubtful, but that pretty clearly to me seems it's his strategy. And a lot of people think something's going on, that it was Sunday last week that he got the target letter, and nothing is happening. It I may mean exactly nothing, but it may mean that something is going on, and you can... Your imagination is can be the guide here. Is more evidence? Is there exculpatory evidence? Or is there some discussion of of a deal? I don't know. But it it it's taken a little longer and it's a little quieter than most of the yeah. The I have that
2: change. I I find it hard to believe. There's exculpatory evidence after a, this I, I, investigation. I, 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 I don't know I, if there's more evidence. That seems to be a prime. So I, I find it awful hard to envision a deal. There might be, but I just find I, it... I don't hard.
0: know. I, I'm, not, I'm just throwing it up. I find it almost impossible to believe that they're in any kind of a plea negotiation. But there's something that's holding this up beyond what the the, right. the, the MSNBC former U.S. attorneys were predicting it may, maybe just be nothing. It may be that they, you know, got to get four more people to read the indictments. It could be. It could be nothing, but it is. It, it's something. I don't know. If, I mean, yeah, if, we've if been what, this I mean,
2: great, great, prosecutors are cautious uh, in the sense that they, uh, they, they wait till they're a hundred percent ready to bring a case. That
0: right, that. and everything that they allege is they know that everybody's going to read it to find one fucking factual error. Right. to discredit the whole thing. So it could be that they just, you know, want more. I don't, I don't frankly, we just don't know. That's right. That's, that's okay, exotic. well, uh,
2: it's a story that's going um, to be with us for a long time, James, I'm afraid, so
0: we'll, we'll stick with it. Well, I'm not afraid. I love the story. <laughs> I'll mean, I mean, be honest with you.
2: James, as you know uh, better than anyone, Simon Rosenberg has been one of the most astute Democratic political analysts for more than 30 years. He was one of the very few who predicted uh, that 2022 was going to be a pretty good Democratic year. Simon, you were prescient uh, about last year, so let's look ahead to next year. Uh, I've, I've read where you said if there's a good economy, and the signs look pretty good today, and yeah. Biden talks effectively to voters about the stakes, he's going to win. Fifteen and a half months out,
1: how does it look? Yeah, listen, I'd much rather be us than them today. I mean, you know, Biden's case for re-election has gotten much stronger. You know, we have, we've had three good elections in a row. We've done well in the 23 elections so far. You know, the overperformance we saw in 2022 has carried on into 2023. And I think the kind of crazy politics that the battleground has been rejecting in the last three elections, you know, if you're a voter who's voted against MAGA in the last three, All you're getting is MAGA on steroids this time. And so I think this anti-MAGA majority in the battleground states that have delivered for the Democrats in the last three elections is going to be poised to deliver for us again. So I feel good. I feel good about where things are.
2: Let's talk about the second part of that formulation, Biden talking effectively to voters, about the the very real issues that you have just raised, very very real pluses. Uh, The age issue won't go away. And it's not yeah. going to go away. You said the president has to say, yeah, I'm older, but I still have my 90-mile-an-hour fastball, which he does on domestic legislation, and I would argue yeah. on Ukraine. But that doesn't seem to be the way most voters view that today.
1: Yeah, listen, I think that the most important thing that we have going for us is that Biden has made the country better. We're better off today than we were. And he's been a successful foreign policy president. And so we have that as a background background to, you know, what's happening in the election. And he's gonna have to sell that really hard. And I think the age issue is we're just gonna have to take it on, you know, frontally, which is that, you know, with age, you know, age is not just a liability, it's also an asset. And having had the most experienced person to ever uh, go into the Oval Office proved to be great for the United States. We have a strong leader. So age is not just losing a step. Age is also wisdom, experience, capability. And we're going to have to, I think, take that head on. I don't, I don't think it's something we should run away from. I think we're going to have to manage it. But I think it's going to be secondary. I think any time they're talking about Joe Biden as a person or as a father or as, as a grandfather, they're losing. The election is going to be about whether people think things are better and whether and who they think is going to offer them you know, to continue to make them better. And Joe Biden is going to have a very, very strong case next year.
2: James, that means we can tell our wives that we uh, we have wisdom. <laughs> I'm not sure buy it out, that. we ought to try it. Simon, you you have pretty much, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, dismissed the impact of a third or fourth party, especially no labels.
1: I haven't dismissed it. I, I think there's. I think that my hope is that we run up the score in this election. That we use their awfulness to not just stumble across the finish line but try to win this election by high single digits even 10 points. I don't I don't think it's out of the realm of the possible. I mean, we got to 59% in Colorado last year and 57 in Pennsylvania, 55 in Michigan. So, in some of these battleground states, we've already been performing, you know, winning these re- elections by more than 10 points. And my hope is that we win it big and and that we don't have to worry about the nibbling third party candidates. And but what I will say is that as we talk about the groups that are challenging the status quo and are not, you know, not embracing the two-party structure right now, to me, the most important are the Never Trump or Never MAGAs. It's the, you know, the um, it, it's, you know, the the whole Bulwark team and and right. Bill Crystal and Liz Cheney. Um, they've already demonstrated a capacity to move the needle in elections towards the Democrats, frankly. Whether any of these other folks who are trying to run now, can move the needle in any way is still a hypothetical, it's still an unknown. And I think what we've seen with Joe Manchin so far, in the first real poll done where he was tested outright with Huntsman, you know, with Huntsman as a his running mate, not a hypothetical moderate in the middle. He was only a two percent, and he drew more from Republicans than Democrats. And I think it's because the Democratic coalition is more together than the Republican coalition. The Republican coalition is already fractured. And so I think there is a danger. And, you know, and this is going to be interesting for what happens with the Republican donors is that Joe Manchin is going to feel to a lot of Democrats a lot more like a Republican. For a lot of Republicans, Joe Manchin is going to be comfortable and he could become the way station for a lot of Republicans who don't want to vote for Trump. And so I'm just not convinced today that any of these third party efforts or rogue candidate efforts are going to amount to anything. But the final thing I'll say is that one thing we have to watch is I think the Republicans are grooming uh, Robert Kennedy to be Trump's running mate. Uh, I don't think it's going to end up happening. I think they'll go with somebody else. But he's not running in the Democratic primary. He's not going to the early states. He's not showing up in mainstream media. He's not going on, you know, podcasts like this, right? He's only appearing in right-wing audiences. And we know from polling that right now, Kennedy's got a two-to-one advantage, faves to unfaves with Republicans, and he's two-to-one negative with Democrats. And that's because that's by design. They're running a campaign to increase his his favorabilities in the Republican audience, and so I think we got to keep an eye on that. I think there's some real, um, you know, Bannonite craziness behind that, and I think at the end of the day, Trump won't pick him. But certainly, that's I don't I don't think he's a serious challenge to Biden unless he ends up on the Trump ticket. James, pick up on all that.
0: Okay, so so some, I don't want to spend a lot on this, but I'm going to make an observation yeah. and tell me if you think I'm crazy. In spite of all of the obsession with no labels. Cornell West presents, in, at the end of the day, is big if not bigger threat than no labels to, to the Democrats and Biden. Am I crazy? I, I,
1: I call it the the Cornell West Jill Stein party. Right. Um, we have to remember that she's helping Cornell West, and I think for a lot of Democrats, evoking her name will be effective <laughs> in right. defining. Um, look, I think it's like any James. You are much more experienced in running campaigns than I am. You know, every campaign, you've got stuff, you've got your assets and your liabilities, the stuff that you're happy with, stuff you're worried about. You know, we got to keep an eye on all these candidates. I just think at the end of the day, you know, Joe Biden's going to be able to manage all of this. I think these are manageable problems because I think that what's different now from 2016 and even 2020 is that voters understand the gravity of the election. Our coalition knows that if there's one stumble— You know, we could lose our democracy. It's why we're seeing so much money pouring into our campaigns and so many volunteers. People are highly motivated and understand the stakes of the election. And I think we've just had a recent experience where people threw their vote away on a third-party candidate that ended up getting us Trump. And so I think that there's more ability now to manage kind of a rogue candidacy like Cornell West and Jill Stein's effort. But it's certainly something that we can't ignore, right? But we also can't allow it to obsess what we do, the most important job we all have is to build up Joe Biden's approval rating, to sell him to the public. And we know from polling that people don't know a lot about what he's done. And when they're informed, his numbers go way up. And so from basic comms 101, James, campaigning 101, what campaigns do is they put information in people's heads that they didn't have before. In this case, the information we can put into people's heads are really gonna help Joe Biden. They already know how awful Donald Trump is. And so, you know, we've got in the next six to nine months, one, to me, one kind of overarching job, which is to sell the accomplishments of the Biden administration to the American people. If we can make significant progress on that, I think we're going to have the election that we all want to have next year. So
0: you uh, you were a very integral part of, I would say, as far as I, in the 92 Clinton campaign, you worked in the war room. And that was in 1992. We are a little over 30, 30 years out. Hard to believe, right. James. And, and, and <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I guess it was 2002, Rui Teixeira, who I think a lot of, and John B. Judas said, well, it's emerging Democratic majority. And then everybody said, no, that's not true. And politics has just had a long hit. How much has po- Democratic po- politics changed in the 30 years? 32 years since 92, as opposed to the 30 years before it. It was the election of Bill Clinton. That Was it a harbinger of big things to happen? It was just one of these events and we just reverted to the same kind of shirts and skins.
1: Well, you remember, James, that one of the goals of that campaign was to make the Democrats competitive at the presidential level again. People forget that in the six previous elections, Republicans had won five times. And and had won in some of those elections, the Reagan elections, by huge margins, and that we were struggling to be competitive. I mean, from 1968 to 1992, we only won one time, and that was 50.1% after Watergate, right? I mean, we were barely competitive. And so Clinton, uh, running as a new Democrat, tried to make us competitive at, at the national level again. And since that election, and that election since, we've won more votes in seven out of eight presidential elections. No American political party has done that. And so it's the best popular vote run by an American political party in all of our history. We didn't win two of those elections, but in terms of winning votes, you know, we've been pretty good at it. The second thing is, building on what you were saying about Rui, is that, you know, from 1992 to 2004, we averaged 47 percent in those four presidential elections. In the mid-aughts, in 05 and 06, I and Rui and others identified a new electorate emerging for the Democratic Party of Hispanic and millennials who were starting to enter the electorate in very large numbers. And we advocated leaning into this new electorate. And we did in 06 and Obama did in 08. And in those four elections since we did that, we've averaged 51%. We jumped from 47 to 51. 51% over four elections. The last time we did that was during FDR's presidency. So we're in one of the strongest presidential runs that we've been in our history. As, as Democrats. And it's why I'm so optimistic. I mean, I think that, you know, they've averaged during that period, they've averaged 46 percent of the vote. We've averaged 51. I mean, we're the, we are much closer to being a majority party than they are. And I think now what I'm advocating is that we need to think about, we, we jumped four points once before by identifying, doing strategic research about a changing coalition and growing our coalition, I think we can do it again and get up to 55 in this election. And that's what I'm advocating, that we need to be looking at this election as an expansion election, expanding our coalition and growing. And we saw it it happen in Jacksonville, we saw it happen in Colorado Springs, you know, where we took away Republican real estate that had been longtime Republican real estate. I'm hopeful that we can do that all across the country in 2024. I'm gonna turn it over to Alec, just make this observation as you respond to it. Every political person, when they look at
0: a poll, there's a couple of things that they look for first you know, some people may look for, you know, strong disapproval versus strong approval of the direction. What I tend to look at is approval and enthusiasm among two groups, blacks and under 30. Because if you don't have a, a robust black turnout, a robust under 30 turnout, that, that's damaging because if it, it, if blacks are supposed to be a 12 share and they come in at 10 and a half, okay. it's not just you're losing a point and a half. The point and a half is going somewhere else. It could yeah. be over 60 uh-huh. white. Uh, what do you see when you're looking at the, the black numbers and the under 30 numbers? Are, are you confident they'll be there on election day or there's yeah. a, a lot no, left we to got do work- here?
1: James, you know this, every election you got to go earn every vote, right? Okay. And it's not you to say it. I know it. You're telling <laughs> yeah, fucking people listen to the show, at. I know so <laughs> I know. This, right, thing, yeah. this thing ain't cooked, right? I mean, right. you know, all of this is possible, but we got to go make it happen, right? And I think right. I think the the what I'd like to say is that about your point and it's a really important point is that um, the You know, we've done very well in these last three elections. And in 2022, I think where some of the commentary is getting things wrong is people are treating it like a nationalized election. It actually wasn't. It's unusual what happened. There was a bluer election inside the battleground states where we raised tons of money and our candidates were able to control the information environment and run unprecedentedly large field campaigns. And then there was a redder election outside the battleground. And so if you don't understand that basic reality that Democrats were able to defy history because of all this money we're raising and our energized grassroots who are also volunteering in unprecedented numbers, you end up with a very different understanding of what happened in the election. And so, for example, young people turned out in very large numbers and voted for us in very large numbers in the battleground states, not necessarily across the whole country outside the battleground. So we've had very strong performance now with young people in three consecutive elections. But John De La Volpe, who is arguably the leading expert on young voters, was just on a po- on a podcast I did. And he said that some of the indicators of intensity with young people are not where we want them to be. And we're gonna, we have work to do. Same thing as with African-Americans. There's clearly been signs of erosion in some places, right? But it's something that is manageable. As long as we understand it, we develop strategies. We've got James, you know, we got more money than we could ever imagine compared oh, to what, oh. you know, we did back 30 years ago. So the ability to run robust, efforts into targeted groups, we have unprecedented tools to be able to do that. So I think it's important for your listeners to understand that something really um, significant has changed in the way that we run our campaigns in the Democratic Party. We've now embraced the early vote, and which we never did before. And James, you and I, 30 years ago, you know, we would be hitting our secondary GOTV targets at four o'clock in the afternoon on election day. But now we're hitting them 10 days out. Uh, from election day because the early vote. And we have more people making phone calls and texting and touching voters because of all this money that we have than we've ever had before. So we're reaching down in GOTV into reaching voters that we could never reach before under the old, the previous system that you and I grew up in. And where you're seeing that have an impact is is in the early vote. In 2022, we did better in the early vote because of this machine that we're building, these tactics that we have, the big campaigns that we have than we did in 2018 and 2020 elections where we did much better. It's the sign of the muscles that we now have to push our performance to the upper end of what's possible because we can now reach, you know, look, there are more Democrats than Republicans, but we have more episodic voters or uh, erratic voters, but we now have unprecedented tools to do GOTV to push our performance to the upper levels. This is a very powerful weapon that we have heading into 2024 And it's one of the reasons I think I'd much rather be us than them. Albert. Uh,
2: Simon, you mentioned uh, Rui Shira. Um, um, He's less optimistic than you are. He's worried the Democrats have have forsaken uh, large swaths of white working class voters who used to be Democrats and argues you can't get to where you want to get unless that's rectified.
1: I, I'm not sure I agree with Rui. I, I think I think it's a more nuanced view. I mean, as I just went through a lot of data with you that, you know, Democrats are performing at a national level mm-hmm. consistently better than we have since the 1930s and 40s. So I think the way that I view it is that we're doing really well at a lot of stuff. A lot more is going right for us than wrong. But can we do better? Yeah, of course we can. We can do better with black turnout. We can do better with Hispanics. We can do better with young people. You know, we, I think there are new opportunities that are appearing to us because of the abortion issue. I mean, we just got polling out of Ohio that shows that Ohio is now starting to look like Kansas in terms of the ballot initiative. Absolutely. The uh, abortion is s- splitting the Republican coalition apart. And so my view is that it's not it's not there. It's very hard, in my view, to paint what's happened in recent years of the Democratic Party in a negative light. Far more is going right than wrong. But can we continue to do better with targeted groups? Of course we can. And it's my view that in 2024, there are at least four groups that we have to really be focusing on in addition to the you know, the white working class, right? It's that like young people, we, we, can, we need to push youth turnout to the highest level possible. Um, it's why I've called for the Democratic Party to launch a national youth voter registration drive. We know from data That young people who are registered vote at the same level as older people who are registered. They're just registered at a lower level. Mm -hmm. And Democrats just shouldn't accept that the people who vote for us the most vote the least. We have enough money and capacity to change that. The second is we need to, we've lost a few points with Hispanics. We've got to go get those back. Um, It's not as big an issue as some people have said because the Hispanic community has grown. So even getting a little bit less means we're still getting more votes than we used to from the Hispanic community. I think the abortion issue is providing us extraordinary opportunities to reach independent and Republican-leaning women all across the country. And then uh, finally, I think the whole never-Trump or never-MAGA world, which is an area of enormous it's already proven to be a powerful force for us. Imagine if Liz Cheney endorses Joe Biden and campaigns with Joe Biden in 2024, the impact that could have. And it's why I'm very optimistic. You know, I think where I disagree with Rui is Rui is a pessimist. I think he's wrong about that. I think that the idea that we should be, as James said in the very beginning, that we should be challenging ourselves to make sure that we're doing the best we can with all of the elements of our coalition and expanding that coalition. I 100 percent agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think Rui is I think Rui is um, selling the Democratic Party's accomplishments a little bit short in recent elections.
2: Let me ask you, though, about one um, potential trouble spot, and that's the Senate map in 2024. It really is the worst map in a long time. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are the odds of retaining the Senate? Obviously, Simon, if you win by 10 points, you're going to retain the Senate. And yeah. if you, you, you only win by a point or two or lose, you're not going to retain the Senate. But just yeah. assuming it's a, it's, a 19, it's a 2020 type outcome, how do you see the Senate?
1: Yeah, look, I think the way I see it is that I think it's likely we win the presidency and win the House. And the Senate is up for grabs. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think to be fair... You know, James, I know you talk to J.B. Perch a lot. I talked to J.B. on Fridays, my oldest friend in politics. We've been good buddies since 1987. It's hard to believe. And he said that he thinks that Tester and and Sherrod Brown are holding and that they feel good about both those races. West Virginia is going to be tough. And so, you know, we start at 50, and it's not clear that we really have a pickup opportunity. We'll see what happens in Florida and Texas. There's a remote possibility that one of those could get competitive um, I'm not giving up on either, and I don't think any of us should. Crazy things have happened in our politics in recent years, but the Senate is going to be really hard. And so, is there a scenario where we win the presidency, win the House, and lose the Senate? Absolutely. I mean, that's certainly within the realm of the possible. I just think, in my view, it's it's too early to know, and it's just right. a jump ball. It's just a jump ball at this
2: point. There, there was also a pretty good poll in Arizona uh, this week, um, which would you know was very should be encouraging for. Uh, Gallegos. But uh.
1: look, I think people, can I just say one thing about that? I, I think that people don't really, I've done a lot of work in the Hispanic community and James may be aware of this, but I, you know, did the first bilingual poll ever done of Hispanic voters 20 years ago. I introduced Spanish language advertising to the Democratic Party. So I've been very involved in the Hispanic strategy. And what people don't really understand is that in the Southwest, in 2004, Bush won Arizona, Colorado, Nevada and New Mexico. They controlled five out of the eight Senate seats and 14 out of 21 House seats. The Southwest was a Republican leaning region. In 2020, Joe Biden won those four states for the first time that a Democrat won all four of them since 1940. Uh, We now, the Republicans now don't control any of the Senate seats in those four states. And we have 14 of the 23 House seats. And this has been, you know, the success that we've had in the Southwest. I mean, the map hasn't changed very much over the last 20 years. Georgia and Virginia went from Republican to Democrat. And then those four states have flipped to the Democrats. That success in the Southwest has been one of the most successful party-wide projects for the Democrats in the last 25 years. And the reason why is that, you know, if you get a little bit less of a bigger pie, you still get more pie, right? And I'll give you what people don't understand about the Hispanic vote is that in 2004, our net margin with Hispanics was 700,000 Hispanic votes for Democrats. In 2020, it was somewhere between four and a half and five million because, because the population's grown so much and we've maintained our margins. That same dynamic has played out in the Southwest. I'm very bullish on our opportunities in the Southwest. And both Trump and DeSantis, if you look at their numbers with Hispanics, they're god awful. And so I think, you know, I feel good about what's happened out there. Our success in Arizona, we've had the last two elections have been the best two elections we've had in Arizona since the 1940s and 50s. And so, you know, lots of reason to be optimistic about that region of the country for us. But again, you know, as James said, it's all a potential. If we don't do the work, we don't have good candidates. We don't raise the money. You know, it all is. It can all evaporate on us. We've all been. We've all. We've all been on that side of the, the equation. Let me ask you one more before we turn yeah. you know, turning over to James. Talk a little. Talk a little bit
2: about the Democratic bench, both those AAA players who are yeah. ready for. The majors,
1: but also uh, some of the some of the newcomers, some of the freshmen. Yeah, James and I really agree on this. I mean, I had a James and I chatted last week, and I really appreciated his perspective on this. I think the the next generation of Democrats is the strongest group that we've ever seen in my lifetime in politics. I mean, you know, whoever your list is, you know, Kamala Harris and and Gavin Newsom and and Jared Polis and you know, Governor Shapiro in Pennsylvania, you know, make whatever your list is of those people, the depth and capacity and talent of what's coming in the Democratic Party should excite all of us. I mean, what I, the way I like to describe this is that, you know, the generational wheel is turning in the Democratic Party. We're moving from the party of the Clintons and Biden and and Nancy Pelosi to the next group. We should all view that as something that's going to go well and it's gonna be successful. And our party may actually be even stronger and more capable in four or six years. We shouldn't fear this transition. We should welcome it and be excited about it. James. So Simon,
0: this is gonna be 75% of observation and it'll get you to respond to it. I think I was the only national Democrat to actually go to Kansas on this referendum. And Al can, can tell you that. And one of the things that I, I learned there is they never made it about abortion. It was always about sneaky politicians in Topeka that were trying to pull a fast one on you. If you remember, they had this convoluted language, they made yeah. the no side, the theory was yes was a better word than no, and they stuck the election day to the Republican primary and they got their asses handed to tell. To the extent that you're talking to anybody in Ohio, make it about sneaky politicians in columbus that want a power take a power from you you uh, it's all about 50 or 60 percent on referendums and these greedy sons of bitches want all the power themselves you're going to get all the pro-choice people run against sneaky politicians
1: it's interesting you say that because in this case it's very analogous i mean what's happening in them trying to move the ballot number from 50 to 60 we just got polling data on it people it's shockingly unpopular because I think, look, there is a, a a a thing that people forget sometimes. I mean, not real people, but people in our business forget, is that, you know, most people view politicians as corrupt and, you know, kind of back dealing, right, you know, in the back room doing deals and not playing straight. And one of the reasons we did so well in Wisconsin, for example, in that state Supreme Court race, was for this exact reason, which is there was a sense that they were you know, the bowl was being passed around the table and some people were taking two helpings, right? And taking too much. And, you know, and that's what happened in Kansas is also what happened in, um, it's what's happening. in It's actually literally what's happening in Ohio is right. that this special election is about them playing games. This is part of MAGA's brand now. I mean, this is why MAGA is, I think, in deep, you know, deep doo-doo is that part of what is going on with MAGA is that people, there's some basic sense that people like they've gone too far, it's too much. They're pushing the envelope in so many different ways. But the abortion issue, particularly for young people, when you talk about motivating young people, I mean, this is a transformative event in the life of people of childbearing age. If you live in one of these states, this is serious stuff. I mean, it's now, if you live in Texas or Florida, it's more likely if you're a couple who are having kids, it's more likely your wife's gonna die now because of the Republicans... This is the kind of issue, James, that could keep them away from this generation for a long time. Let me give you a stat about young people because I know you think about it a lot. In the civics daily track, I just checked this morning, among 18 to 34-year-olds, uh, Republicans are 18 favorable, 73 unfave, minus 55. That means that somewhere between 65 and 70 percent of 18 to 34-year-olds, the Republican Party is not even an option for them. I mean, those are devastating numbers, James. And so, you know, I think part of it is climate change, guns, abortion, you know, economic growth, COVID, all this stuff. If you're a young person, the Republican Party has looked like an incredible mess. The Democrats are closer to your values. And so abortion now has become part of that story. It's been part of that equation. Uh, we're seeing, by the way, similar things in Florida. There's We're trying to get signatures for a ballot initiative in Florida to roll back the six week abortion ban that... Um, that DeSantis put into place. It's overwhelmingly popular in Florida. And so I think Republicans have, you know, I think the Dobbs decision, it wasn't just Dobbs. It was them, you know, pushing abortion extremism, you know, going past the 15 weeks, going to six weeks, going to nine weeks, going after contraception. They went too far and they've really, I think they've done enormous damage to their brand with both women and also with young people in ways that could be meaningful for our politics for a long time to come.
0: So i just gonna make one observation. As you've gone through your work, as you do every day, pay attention to Florida and particularly pay attention to the insurance issue. This is an enormous fricking issue. It's enormous in Louisiana, it's enormous in South Mississippi where I live. I mean, they're literally pricing people out of their houses. And this is an enormous issue in Florida. It, it has not received nearly enough attention it deserves. And it's a terrible issue for them because they control the governor, they control the House, they control the Senate, and they control
1: the office of the Insurance Commission. And and, and, they, and they passed bad legislation. Yeah, they passed <laughs> I mean, bad legislation. And, they, and, they, and they, they made the crisis worse. They passed legislation. They claimed that was going to make it better, right. and it made it worse. Yeah, no, no, look, I—, I I am very bullish on Florida. I think DeSantis and the legislative session, he went too far. He went too far on immigration. He went too far on abortion. He's, you know, scaring businesses out of the state, attacking businesses. Uh, He's, you know, this issue, the insurance issue. He's, you know, I think we're gonna be able to run against DeSantis' Florida next year across the whole country. You wanna know what Republican government brings to the United States? Let's go look at the mess DeSantis has made in Florida. Do you know that inflation's higher in Florida today than any state in the country? Ron DeSantis is attacking Biden for inflation. It's higher in Florida than any state in America. It's going in the wrong direction in Florida. So, I think I think you're right, James, that Florida was a competitive state just as recently as 2018. We won it in 2012. I think DeSantis may be giving us material to put Florida back in play in 2024 which is why I think this abortion ballot initiative is going to be very important because it's already got Republican support. The leading group that's running it is bipartisan. Donna Shalala is leading, is one of the leaders of this effort, James, an old friend of yours. And she's, um, I'm very optimistic that we have tools there to make Florida competitive again in the coming years. Whether we have enough money, whether we can spread the map, we'll see. But I, I don't, you know, I'm with you, James. We've got to keep an eye on Florida.
2: Well, so it's not you get on the ballot because- Florida has not been as aggressive as some other states uh, uh, in getting referendums. And it seems to me there's a number of them which would be very helpful for Democrats, including abortion.
1: The the barrier to get on the ballot there is really hard. I mean, it's super expensive. It's very difficult. They don't, you know, basically the system is very biased against ballot initiatives. This one's going to make it and it will qualify. What's going to be interesting to watch is whether or not the state legislature next year somehow does something to invalidate it. Because it will qualify by the end of this year. That's
2: what they did with a member of the felons. They uh, The right. voters overwhelmingly approved it, and then right. they uh, sandbagged it.
1: Yeah, and so we'll see. But I think the team that's running this thing is very sharp. I'm very optimistic about um, – I think they're doing a really good job, and I think this is the ability – look, six weeks, DeSantis – think about this, guys, right? DeSantis passed 15-week abortion ban in Florida. We know that that's something that, you know, is – acceptable to many voters around the country, DeSantis chooses to push it to six weeks, which essentially is a full ban, right? And it was such a catastrophic mistake for him. It was such a, of all the many mistakes that DeSantis has made, and he's made a lot of them in the last year, what he's done on abortion is is among the biggest ones, and it could really cost the Republicans in the election next year.
0: James, anything else? Well, you know, just the, the person that funded these referendums on on felons and maybe even the minimum wage is a very close friend of mine named John Morgan. He's probably the most influential Democrat in Florida. Most people haven't heard about him. Yeah. So if you want to try it act out, I'm going to text John and say, why don't you fund
1: <laughs> They need some money. I mean, they're raising money, but they, the ballot right. process is very expensive and yeah. they're kind of – it's a bummer that we're having to spend so much money on the ballot just collecting signatures. But they could use a little, they could use a little dough, uh, James, uh, so it, do reach out to him. Nikki Freed is a
0: friend of mine, but I think she's a step in the right direction for the state party. I think she's, you know, she didn't have much to start with, but wherever we are, I think we're a little better than we started
2: well, we're, we're back when, when we started, Simon, uh, uh, because uh, you have enlightened us. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate having you on. And I hope you'll come back again uh, a couple of times in the next 15 months.
1: Whenever James Carville calls, I come running. <laughs> so, <whenever> you <laughs> Thank guys, you. Whenever you guys you're, need you're me, kind. Happy, to, happy to come. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
2: And now for the outrage of the week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Remember him? The book banner. He's now requiring that middle school students in that state be taught that slavery enabled slaves to develop skills that they were able to use for their personal benefit. Fox News' Jesse Waters rushed to DeSantis' defense. So I'll tell you what I thought when I read that. I thought, you know, maybe DeSantis next will require Florida students in history to learn that during the Holocaust, Jewish prisoners developed skills like building quarries and producing materials for the German army that they could later use. But you know what? Greg Gutfeld, the other Fox News anchor, beat me to it. He cited that possibility, which, of course, every Holocaust expert said was uh, deplorable. Um, and, And Will Hurd, Republican presidential candidate, had to remind DeSantis that slavery was de- dehumanizing, treating people as property. James, I, I just didn't, I couldn't imagine we would be having these discussions in the year 2023.
0: Well, uh, I'm glad you brought that, I'm Hopefully we get him next week. I, I, I know he wants to do it. But we're going to get the great former chairman of History Department at Princeton, the great Sean Blentz, to have a, a whole show about how throughout his history, history has been politicized. I mean, you know, history is not 1066, 1588, 1776, 1941, you know, you name it. Uh, And it's always been the, the, the subject of politicization. Now, the defense is, well, it's true that some slaves picked up skills that they were able to transfer when they became free. I I assume that's true. I mean, somebody learned blacksmith and was free and maybe opened a blacksmith shop. It sounds kind of logical. One of the things I realize, that I I tend to forget, is the chief agricultural crop in the Carolinas in colonial times and, and early American history was rice. Now, rice was not grown. It was only grown, it was upgrown in Africa. To so actually, the slaves bought the expertise to grow the chief crop in North Carolina and South Carolina. Now, you might have had I don't know ten slaves that were able to transfer some skill, at, but they bought a lot more skills here with them. They were skilled people. We weren't. We didn't, but. The, it's the British, whoever you know, slave trade uprooted them, and and so you technically will argue, well, well, that's that's true. Okay, so that's one fact. Some small percentage of slaves were able to parlay skills that they learned during slavery uh, to make some money when it ended. Okay, fine, I, I buy it. So there's an economic historian at Cornell, by the name of Edward Baptist, like the the Southern Baptist Convention, that wrote a book. And and I've looked, and it's not disputed. The single most valuable commodity in the United States in 1860 was not railroads. It was not crops or goods or steel or anything else or leather. or or horses, it was human beings. Yes, the single most valuable commodity in this country in 1860 was human beings. Now, if you're doing a survey course for eighth graders or ninth graders in American history, slavery's gonna occupy, let's just say it's 20 hours of teaching, it'll occupy an hour and a half. All right, in that hour and a half, what do you think you want people to know? Some technical – and, of course, if you talk about the, the expertise that slaves bought to this country as opposed to what they learned after they got here, it would have been 50 to 1 in favor of what they bought to the country. And people forget that. They bought – people that had real, real skill. And, again, they were responsible for the chief agricultural crop and the Carolinas, which were a big part of the American South, to say the least. So i it's just such a level. Whenever you get into the argument as to whether this is historically accurate or not, is this really what you want? Is this the most important thing to know about that? I I don't really think so, is it? I don't think it's even in the top 5,000 things that you could learn about slavery. But the trick is— the rhetorical trick is to get you into an argument about whether that's true or not. Okay? it at, at some level, it may be some truth there. What fuck difference does it make? The other, there's way more evidence that slaves contributed to, by, you know, I don't know, twenty thousand to one more than to white people, and white people contributed to slaves.
2: Yeah, I agree. Now, our Screw the Voters segment. Uh, Andrew Jackson once said, Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision. Let's see him enforce it. Now, I have a rather low regard for the current high court, which has been thoroughly politicized, both in how several Republican judges got there and in general partisan decisions. But I think we need to respect and obey court decisions even when we dislike them. When they make bad wins, which they often do these days, you see if there's a legal workaround, possible uh, setting legislation. But you don't ignore or, or disobey Supreme Court decisions unless you're an Alabama Republican. The court, and su- high court in a surprise uh, vote earlier this year ruled against a blatantly political and racially gerrymandered congressional map. Alabama has a 27 percent black population, but blacks hold only one of the seven congressional seats. Supreme Court mandated a new fair map be drawn. Alabama Alabama Republicans, channeling their inner Andrew Jackson, said, screw you, John Roberts, and drew a new map hardly changed from the old and virtually guarantees the election of a white representative. The question now, will the Republican Supreme Court stand up and force these Alabama yahoos to follow the law? And by the way, James, a Brennan Center study found that since the Supreme Court, in a really bad decision, gutted a provision of the Voting Rights Act a decade ago, the percentage of the black vote in Alabama has steadily declined
0: so I mean, I'll make a, a short comment about that. It's very very Andrew Jackson is a very controversial person in history, terrible on Native Americans, terrible on slavery, but was good on banks and stuff like this. he He, he said one thing that I think inches him into positive territory, but not by much but does is uh he had the same attitude about John C. Calhoun as those January sixth people had about Mike Pence. He wanted to hang Calhoun, so anybody. In American politics, going to hang John C. Calhoun can't be all bad. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, oh, Hickory will give you that one, okay? Thank you. Thank But I'll tell you, uh, I I just want, uh, I hope that five-member majority in the Supreme Court has the guts to stick it to Alabama. Don't let them get away with this stuff.
0: Well, it's a, it, it's a slap in, in Robertson Kavanaugh's face. I, it I, sure is. I don't it's know sure. how they cannot do that.
2: Yeah, and I hope they. I hope. I assume you can get it to them quickly. Uh, I hope well, you they yeah, get to it as quickly as they want. Yeah, <laughs> the well, fucking you Supreme know. Court. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, it's not. It's not like you snap your fingers and it, it'll get to them. I just hope it gets to them. Five
0: of them want it. They can get it.
2: Yeah. Well, you got to go anyway. We'll we'll talk yeah, about right. that some of the time. All right, now for our very good listener question. Scott in Carpinteria, California. I've stayed there. I love Carpinteria. Uh, He says, your constant worry about the enthusiasm gap, he thinks is unwarranted, James. He said, I would crawl across Death Valley at high noon on the 4th of July to vote against Donald Trump. Don't you think that Trump fatigue, Trump hatred, and the never Trump mentality is going to win out? I apparently have more faith in the American people than you do.
0: Well, uh, great, Uh, and and uh, 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 you know when you do politics for a living, you take nothing for granted, and I have seen crappy uh, black turnout here in the last two cycles. It just it's it's unimpressive. You can never take these younger voters uh, for granted. You always want as high as you can, and maybe I'm just a worrywart. But if I'm if I'm wrong, who cares? But if I'm right and we pay attention to this and get it, then we'll be victorious. But I understand you're a highly motivated guy, but you know, some 19-year-old hourly wage worker in a fast food restaurant may not be as enthusiastic as you are, and we need that person she or him as bad as we need people like yourself so uh, i i appreciate it I, I like your confidence but i will still continue to worry
2: <laughs> yeah, no i do too and i would uh, <clears throat> boy i'd love i'd just love to get a picture of you crawling across death valley at high noon and uh, that's a that's the well, ultimate commitment that's good luck. i don't think you'd make it right now but <laughs> don't try it uh, we're gonna stick with the golden state jim woodland Uh, Jim now you got to tell us where oh I'm sorry it's my fault this is my fault it's Jim from Woodland California Jim got it right and I screwed it up Jim said he's concerned about the ethics or the non-existent ethics of the Supreme Court and he said I know having Congress address this problem by the court opens up all kinds of constitutional questions balance of power would it be possible to go after the source of the grab? Jim, i will tell you, is going to happen. It's not going to happen legislatively. We can't get anything through. It's going to happen from good reporters. That's what's happened already. Uh, ProPublica, The Washington Post and others. And one of the greatest investigative reporters of all times, I mean this, Jane Mayer, is writing a book about the Supreme Court. And I can't wait to read it. And my guess is that's going to address some of your concerns.
0: Yeah, I, I- I don't know the pro-publican people. Maybe I do. I'd have to look up who they are. But I got to tell you, they're taking the lead on this thing. They're ahead, of, they're ahead of, of the Times, ahead of the Post. I mean, Jane has been on this issue forever, so no one I would put ahead of her. But but they're the ones that keep breaking these freaking stories, and the stories turn out to be hi- highly reliable and highly credible and I, I don't, like I said, I don't know who the editor this is. Maybe I know him or her, but I don't connect with it. But, but they, they've been very aggressive and very influential in this whole issue. Yeah,
2: they, they sure have. Keep an eye on Jane Mayer. Craig in Always. Florida says, uh, well, Craig, I'd love to know where in Florida you're from. Uh, he wants to know, and we discussed this earlier, how did the state of Florida go from Lawton Childs and Bob Graham to Medicare fraud executive? And now, fascist Lumpy Rutherford in this century, and will the climate change affect the state more than its voting population in the ensuing years?
0: Ah, uh, well, I don't think well, I, th- that that thought has gone through everybody's mind. And, and you know, of course, what I, I suspect that we would find out is you got places like the villages where they've gotten a lot of you know, middle to slightly upper middle class. Uh, retirees that have kind of changed the entire thing, uh, and maybe you know the Democrats hadn't had the the, the best candidates in the world uh, in this century. I, I don't know that, but it it, it has been a, a depressing story uh, for over a, a pretty good period of time here. And you're right to point it out. I I, I would tell you that I'm starting to get. Uh, a little optimistic about the Democrats in Florida. Uh, I think we have a good party chair. I think DeSantis has seen his, his high point, and he's, he's on the way down. I think there's a lot of room for him to go down. And I can't tell you, this this insurance crisis in Florida, I've, I've been preaching this, and I know I'm right on this. It, it, people are not paying attention to it. It's bad, and the labor shortages down there are horrible Inflation is horrible. It's, you know, Florida was, two years ago, was the coming state. Now, not so much.
2: Well, let's hope so.
0: Brian in
2: Arlington, Massachusetts, says, as the myriad trials of Trump are looming large, can you speculate on the likelihood that Biden wins in 2024, pardons Trump for the greater good of the country? I heard you all bring up that alternative or some kind of a pledge to not run again. But that seems like a fool's uh, bargain. Brian, I'll tell you what I think we talked about. We talked about if I think Trump's going to uh, if you're dealing with probabilities, he's going to be convicted, I don't know, two, three, four times. Uh, and if Biden wins uh, and he doesn't pardon Trump, I think the ex-president is headed for a slammer, uh, which is scares the living by Jesus out of him. The only thing that I would find acceptable was that that three conditions are met and not running again is the easiest because he's not going to. But number one, he openly admits he's guilty, openly says, I did all this, Uh, and, and has to sign something, say something, and everything else. He can later, as he will, say, well, I was lying, but that's okay. I want him to say it publicly so it's out there. And number two, pay a humongous fine, a humongous fine. I mean, if he's worth several billion, I've always been a little skeptical of that, uh, a big chunk of that ought to go to the federal government, ought to go to Fulton County, and ought to go to New York. Under those conditions, in twenty twenty-five or twenty twenty-six, uh, I could imagine a pardon, but short of any of that, no way.
0: Yeah, think you got a deal with Florida and Manhattan, right? Which is a you know a, 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 a sticky. A, a, a sticky problem, but I, I assume that part of the deal would have to be that the president would have to call Albert Bragg and and Fannie Willis and ask them, in the interest of the country, would they suspend the politics, the, the the prosecution? But if Trump, in any way, breaks any part of this, that that it, the prosecution will regenerate itself. I I, I don't know, but that that, that that's the sticky wicket in the whole thing. Yeah,
2: no, I, uh, um, you know, I totally agree. And as I say, you get a lot of uh, uh, money. I think he's got to pay a huge fine uh, in both those places. Jim in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, oh
0: wow! Uh, uh, Did he go up about, to Camp Kenosha? <laughs> we're going upscale. Uh, Northwest indeed. Yeah, he
2: says, James, be honest about Harris. Is America worried she might inherit the
0: presidency? She's not going to inherit the presidency. All right. and, and I will she's vice president if something happens to Joe Biden. I, I, well, she'll inherit it that way. But she's not going to win, I don't think, the Democratic nomination. And I I, I just, her numbers are not that great. I, I think she's a, 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 a very fine person, very bright, has an accomplished career. But she doesn't generate very much enthusiasm among Democrats so far. Uh, you know, she went to Florida. She's trying. She's doing better. Maybe she will. But I, I don't know. I, but I, 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 certainly she could inherit the president. If Biden died, or he was incapacitated. No. But I, I, I think if Biden didn't run, or something happened, even if she were the incumbent, I don't think she'd win a Democratic nomination. Yeah, I, I mean, I. I, 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 say I, that. I,
2: just, I agree. I agree. Uh, and if something, if Biden should drop out, the one thing we can be sure of, uh, Kamala Harris won't clear any field. Yeah, have yeah, yeah. to it. But I remember reading a quote from Mike Mansfield, wishing the Republicans luck, but not too much luck. This was during the post-Goldwater ascendancy of the of the uh, the Democrats. As a born and bred Democrat, I thought he was crazy. In the era of Trump. I see that we do need a healthy center right that supports our Constitution. How do we regain that if the GOP, as I think, is irredeemable? Um, Gordon I actually knew Mike Mansfield pretty well. And uh, what he actually said was during the passage of the 65 Civil Rights Act, he wanted to be bipartisan and he gave Dirksen a lot of credit. And Senator Vance Hartke of Indiana came in and complained and said, damn it, uh, leader, you are giving too much credit to the Republicans. And he said, uh, Senator. They've gone through a very traumatic time. Civil rights is very important to America. uh, And it's very important that we get as many Republicans and Democrats together on this bill. I thought it was an act of great statesmanship. It's not possible today. It's not possible today's Republican Party. It just isn't. And I agree with you totally. We would be much better off if we had a healthy center-right party. Uh, I don't see the prospect of that in any time in the near future.
0: So I'm going to go kick back to you because I think uh, Senator Mansfield is a man deserving of a little more commentary. Uh, tell our viewers about the extraordinary, and I mean extraordinary life of Mike Mansfield. Because uh, you told me about it, and, even, and I didn't even realize it was this oh, extraordinary.
2: This is a labor of love, James. Uh, he grew up, born in New York, grew up in Montana, As a young uh, teenager, he got in a lot of problems, Uh, was a juvenile delinquent, self-confessed juvenile delinquent. And before he was 19, he was in the Army and the Navy and the Marine Corps. And uh, he got out and he met this uh, wonderful college professor, Maureen, and she said, you better straighten your life out. She said, she said, you got a lot of straightening to do. and You better straighten your life out. And he did. He went on to not only graduate from college, but get a Ph.D. in history, became um, was elected to the House of Representatives, became a United States senator, the longest running Senate majority leader in history. Uh, I'd love telling this story, as you know, James, uh, was appointed ambassador to Japan by Jimmy Carter. And, you know, it's one of the most important ambassadorial posts. uh, And when Reagan was elected, he kept Mansfield there for eight years because he was such a revered figure. And then when he came back, you know, Mark Shields and I, courtesy of his old age, Charlie Ferris, were so fortunate to be able to have lunch with him several times a year. When he died with all these, po- he had been longest serving Senate Majority Leader, 12 years as ambassador to Japan, a member of the Congress, a PhD in, uh, in, in history on his, on, on, on his tombstone at Arlington Cemetery. It says, Michael Joseph Mansfield, private USMC. He was an extraordinary man.
0: Yeah, I, just to add a little bit, his, his PhD was in, I think, Far Eastern, a, Eastern it was. Studies. It was like in Asian Studies. And, you know, he shepherded the Civil Rights Bill through and as important as anything because he was one of the first people to tell Lyndon Johnson the Vietnam War was a fucking disaster. Yeah. Which you yeah. get a lot of credit for calling out right. But uh, I, what, a, what a great uh, question. I, I know that how intent do you feel about Senator Mansfield? And since I I knew he was a great man, I didn't realize that, you know, one of the greatest non-president figures of the entire 20th century.
2: Yeah, he sure was. You know, back in those days, uh, when they go and meet the press, uh, they would have uh, Hubert Humphrey on one week. And it was probably a 22-minute show then. And you probably got, if you're lucky, about four or five questions in because Hubert tended to be loquacious. And then you would get Mike Mansfield on a few weeks later, and a lot of his answers were "yep," "nope," "no way," "I don't know." And you'd probably get 77 questions in, uh, but he was a he, he was a marvelous man, and a great rock and tour. They say Mark and I were so fortunate in the 90s to have these lunches with him uh, because he would tell great stories, and uh, he was just a he was he was an extraordinary patriot. And-
0: I'd be Daryl if I didn't mention there's a new book out that I hadn't read, read recent reviews about Senator Humphrey's 1948 speech to the Democratic Convention out of into the sunlight of civil rights. That was a staggeringly courageous, uh, forward looking speech, and just to tell a story, it fermented in his time as a graduate student at LSU. I I knew the the house that he lived in when he was there, and he saw firsthand. extreme racism that was in Baton Rouge, and it really affected him and was the driving uh, idea behind that, that speech which turned out to be one of the most influential and forward-thinking speeches ever given at a political convention at any time. So, and
2: it sure but, was, and it changed the Democratic Party. It made them much more sure proactive did. and I get sure out of did. the shadow of state's rights and into the sunshine of, of human rights. Okay, keep those questions coming. They are terrific. Um, we'll be back with you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Now, don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicsworldrome at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our recent sponsors in the recent episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You also can find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.